when you found a sponsor you like, you don't go all in. You need to diversify. You know, if you've allocated X number of dollars, you don't want to put the whole bucket in the kit and caboodle with one sponsor on your first investment. Take your time, you know, try a couple out. And then when you find ones that you're comfortable with, then you really can make larger bets. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from sunny, beautiful, warm California. Today on the show, I have a very special guest from Colorado, Eric Ritvo. So Eric is a CEO of Ritvest, and he is focused on long-term buy-and-hold real estate investments. And actually, his career started similar to mine as an attorney in Boston, where he served as general counsel to the Endurance International Group and several others. So he started as a lawyer. Very interesting. And I can tell you that when lawyers are looking at numbers, you know, we always tend to look at the worst case scenarios and how, you know, how to protect ourselves from anything that can go wrong. It's not something that we can really fight as attorneys. But his past ventures include one company founder, which he he's done, payment company executive and expansion lead for a cannabis testing facility. Interesting background, very diverse. So Eric's grandparents immigrated to the U.S. from Europe. They were hoping, like you know, many immigrants, for better future, better life. And he's the grandchild of a rabbi, domestic CEO, radiologist, and a leading 20th century feminist. He's a child of two lifetime public servants in education and a brother of a nonprofit executive. So he comes from a very, very interesting background, really interesting family, very diverse background and family, I would say. And his wife, just to add a little bit more interest there, his wife is a cybersecurity expert, and they have two adorable children. And lastly, Eric is an active supporter of the Anti-Defamation League, the Food Bank of the Rockies, the Greater Boston Food Bank, Jewish Colorado, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and the State of Israel and National Public Radio. So I don't know how you have time to do all these things, but very impressive background. And, you know, that was really interesting. I would like to welcome you, Eric, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And thanks for reading my bio. I, I sound more accomplished I think, than I feel. <laughs> That's the case many times with very successful people. They always feel that they haven't achieved enough and they still have a lot, you know, a lot more ground to cover. I don't know how you find time to do all these things. I really don't. 
it helps to have a very supportive family and you know it just it, giving back is something that i was taught early and so you got to do that and you have to fill in the giving back with the making money and investing and other things that we do all right. All right. So before we kick off the conversation, talk about multifamily as the asset that you like to invest in, can you kind of walk us through how you ended up in real estate? What was it like for you, especially, you know, coming from the legal world? Many times lawyers have a tendency to look at deals and, and not really be on the buying side because risk is something that is kind of a bit challenging, I would say, for many lawyers out there. So Tell me your story. How did you end up buying real estate? So I, I wound up getting into real estate after my last W-2 job, which was the cannabis testing facility expansion lead. And what happened was I was just looking around for what was next. Like many entrepreneurs, we always wind up leaving our jobs before we know what our next job is or our next task or venture. And I was looking around and I kept coming back to real estate mainly for two reasons. One is Real estate professionals that do it full time seem to have a schedule that appealed to me for starters. And then second of all, I read simply that multifamily was the least risky investment over the past hundred years. If you look at the risk involved plus the return and you can plot it versus say startup investing or other aspects of real estate investing, it just, or the stock market, it really was the least risky of all the real estate investments. And I wanted to diversify into real estate. You know, that coupled with a very simple philosophy, which had started early and is absolutely true now, which is we're a nation of renters. If you look at 20s and 30s somethings, they don't either they can't afford to buy a home or they don't want to buy a home or both. And if you also look at the older generation, as I had dinner last night with my mom and some of her friends, you know, half of the women in the room last night were renters. You know, they just don't want to own a home anymore. They don't want the responsibility of fixing a roof or a boiler or anything else you can call a landlord for. So when you looked at the profile of multifamily real estate over the past century, coupled with where our nation was at in 2019 when I started and where it is now, it, would, it just made sense to get into multifamily. So, you know, it's not a highly developed formula except looking around and getting a sense of where things are and where they're going. And luckily I was right. You know, real estate, I'll say this last point. I think real estate needs to be a part of everybody's portfolio, real estate investing. And at the time I got into it, I actually had very little in real estate, uh, just some REITs. And I wanted to be a more active player because they're not making more land. Absolutely. And I think you're spot on when it comes to a nation of renters, this trend is only getting more dominant and strong and basically get stronger because the younger generation, they don't want to tie themselves down to a house or a certain location. They want to be able to travel if they want to. They want to be able to move companies and move you know states from one coast to another based on where the opportunity is or their partner is or whatever they want to do. So it's a very, very different world than 20, 30 years ago when you had at the age of 25, 30, you got married, you bought a house right away. And this, that was your home until you retire. We're not in that world anymore. And so the demand for multifamily is just, you know, increasing over time. And you're right, they're not building lands anymore. And cost of, you know, construction and labor is is going up, which it's not good news for construction, but it's good news for those who are buying and, and those who own 
multifamily already because the barriers to entry are much expensive today than it was 10 and 20 years ago. So I think, you know, we kind of covered why you think multifamily is a strong asset class and kind of as an investment asset class for you. And obviously, you know, we shared the same thinking there. I'm also very much into multifamily and I think it's, it, it is safer. No investment is safe, period, but it's safer and you can mitigate your risk compared to other investment vehicles and other asset classes when it comes to real estate. I want to transition and talk about the process of getting to know your sponsor because a lot of investors like yourself, you know, they, they may own homes or small multifamilies, two to four doors, and then they want to diversify and they want to invest with someone who buys, you know, 200, 300 doors, but they don't want necessarily, they don't want to put, you know, 100% of the down payment. And this is something that, you know, basically called syndication that you're also part of. Can you share with me and the listeners kind of your thoughts about how do you choose the right sponsor? What are you looking for as a passive investor when you're considering investing with one? Because by the end of the day, you're not going to have a lot of visibility into what's going on behind the scenes. You're not there on management calls. You're not visiting the property every week. So you got to be really comfortable with the sponsor you choose. Not only are you not going to have visibility, you're also not going to have control. Yeah. I mean, part of the whole idea is when you're investing with a sponsor is that the sponsor and the sponsor's team, he or she's doing the majority of the work. You're providing some capital in exchange for a return. So you have to orient your thinking appropriately because- while most people tend to have some level of control freak within them, you're actively making a decision to seed control. So you first have to be willing to do that. So for starters, that's a mentality shift that most investors need to make or have gotten to make in their history. The other thing I look for, in a, I look for a bunch of things in a sponsor. The first thing I always look for is how does the initial conversation go? You know, as people, we have conversations, I don't know, maybe a hundred a day, 50 a day, 20 a day, depending on how friendly you are. And you already know who you like talking to and who you don't. You know how you like getting information. You know how you like hearing information. You can tell when you're being sold versus when somebody mm -hmm. is just being more honest. And whenever you're talking to a sponsor, you need to be aware that there's always some selling going on because they need your money and they want your money for their investment. So you have to orient yourself correctly for that conversation. But if there's certain things that are very important to you and you're not getting the answers, that leads you to the conclusion of find another sponsor. You know, there's no shortage of deals and people willing to take your money in multifamily. There is a shortage, I think, of trustworthy and good sponsors, people who have done the market analysis, people who are looking at NOI, people are looking at taxes. You know, they're just different ways to do it. I always like sponsors that'll share with me the underwriting whether it is the spreadsheet or a PDF of it, because you can tell what they're thinking about and what they're not thinking about. I mean, one of the things I always look at closely is the taxes. Whenever an asset trades, taxes go up because the price has gone up and local, local cities and municipalities want their taxes. So you need to look at how a sponsor has adjusted taxes or not adjusted taxes. You need to look at their market report or whatever marketing information they're going to give you on rents. A lot of the deals I've invested in had under market rents, uh, where the rents can be increased, you know, one to $200 over a period of time, 
you don't want to do it all at once. You'll shock your tenant base and you'll wind up with huge vacancy. But you need to understand where you're positioned versus not positioned. I look at, you know, you have to talk to the sponsor about the debt. Is it long-term debt? Is it short-term debt? People that have been doing short-term bridge debt since, you know, in the past two to five years, they're about to have a bill come due and they may not be able to get out of it. You know, have they been able to force the appreciation by doing a value add with rents or amenities? You know, did they add a pool or a dog park or a barbecue pit or a business center or covered parking or assigned parking? These are things that people want and things that people will pay for and they'll hit the net operating income, your NOI and the bottom line and they'll increase your value. So, you know, what, what I look for in a sponsor is somebody who has looked at all these things. And when I have a question, they've got an answer at the ready. And if they don't, they're not unwilling to say things like, I don't know, and I'll get back to you. The number of people that feel that they can't say, I don't know, is shocking to me. A sponsor, in my opinion, always gains trust when they're willing to admit what they know and what they don't know. You know, it is not difficult to find the top 10 multifamily markets for investing right now. You can Google that on Forbes, you can Google it on the internet, and you'll just get 20 different articles, and you'll start seeing trends. And the question is, are the sponsors you're investing with part of those trends or are they zagging against them? And if they're zagging, why are they zagging? You know, what is it that causes a sponsor to want to invest in Atlanta or Charlotte or Florida versus, say, Salt Lake City or Boise, Idaho or Indianapolis, Indiana? All those have been and will be probably very good markets, but why you're getting into that asset in that market really matters. And you got to get a good answer for it. And then the last thing I would say is when you found a sponsor you like, you don't go all in. You need to diversify. You know, if you've allocated X number of dollars, you don't want to put the whole bucket and the kit and caboodle with one sponsor on your first investment. Take your time, you know, try a couple out. And then when you find ones that you're comfortable with, then you really can make larger bets. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, one interesting thing that I found that actually surprised me as a sponsor is that many investors don't really look into how much they got paid and compared it to how much was the performa when they got the deal. So there's the fact that you're getting your monthly or quarterly payments. You know, if the projections were 5%, did you get 5% or did you get three? And, you know, it's very easy to sum up the first 12, you know, months that income over, you know, the invested amount and you can get the cash on cash. And then this way, because I'm also investing, you know, with other sponsors as a passive investor, and I always do that. And then I see who is actually, who is hitting their pref or their cash on cash projections, which are two different things, and who isn't. And that can really give you, and if they're not, then is there any explanation? Or are they silent and they're just hoping that investors are not going to pay attention? So all these things are very important. So Eric, has your process or the questions that you ask changed since COVID started or when you were kind of looking into the anticipated, you know, inflation and the changes that are we're, we're about to face? So the interesting thing about COVID is most multifamily during COVID outperformed everything else. You know, part of the philosophy of getting into multifamily for me was that people pay their rent. It's the first bill people pay followed by their grocery bill. And COVID proved that. You know, people paid their rent, bought their food, and then everything else came next. Uh, I believe it was healthcare's third on the list, which isn't surprising during a pandemic. So, you know, what happened during COVID was there was, for me, it reconfirmed why I wanted to be in multifamily versus other asset classes of real estate. 
But you also then now have a period of time where you can vet sponsors track record based on what happened on a macro level. So what COVID did for me was, you know, not just confirm the philosophy upon which to make an investment, but it also gives another piece of information on which to evaluate a sponsor. The most notable change now from when I started was the importance of the sponsor has been raised. I've been involved in a couple of deals that haven't performed according to expectations. And had I known then what I know now, and I can get specific on that point about what I should have looked at and what I should have learned, I wouldn't have done those investments. You know, there was one investment where if you look at the initial underwriting, now I'm able to look at it and realize their CapEx number was way too low for the vintage of the property. It was a 1970s, 1980s build. So there's been a large CapEx thing and we just didn't have the reserves to pay for it. They're not paying investors now. They're keeping the money to do the renovations. It's not ideal. Not great, Bob, so to speak. But that's also why you don't invest with one sponsor everything so that you can afford to have some outperform and some underperform. You know, I've had other investments with sponsors. I did a deal in Durango because I really liked the sponsor and I really liked what they were purchasing. It was a 2016 A-class build. And in Durango, Colorado, there just aren't many like that. You know, what then happened during COVID is there was a massive influx of, of population in Durango. Rents are up 30 to 40% over a year. I think it was one of the top performing markets in the nation. No one could have predicted that. And I certainly didn't, but I was glad I looked at the market and the type of building and the sponsor and their track record. So, you know, COVID has had a major influence on the way I look at things because now I'm much more careful about sponsors. I will allow to, you know, steward my funds and take care of them. So, you know, and if a sponsor does right by you or right by us in this case, you know, we'll continue to invest with them. And if they don't do right by us, when the investment ends, we'll move on to somebody else. Yep, absolutely. I think you get one shot to ruin, you know, a good impression. And I think also a lot of it is through communications. I mean, you can't, I keep telling investors just you know, you can't expect to win every time, to hit your numbers every time on every investment. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been compensated for taking a risk because there would be no risk. But how are you mitigating that and, you know, investing with the right, in the right market, with the right sponsor is definitely, definitely crucial. Just to agree with you, you know, yeah. with stars and rainbows and, you know, as much all caps as I can, the communication is key. No one expects everything to go swimmingly, but how you handle a negative event matters. And when I have to chase you for a monthly update that you've promised me, that's a problem. We've all got better things to do with our times. And I read yeah. everything that's sent to me by a sponsor because I want to know what's happening. I think that's part of my responsibility as an investor is to read everything and ask questions. So yeah. communication, you know, good or bad is always crucial. And you will gain more trust by handling a negative correctly than you will just by hitting what people expected. Yeah. Absolutely. And if there are any sponsors, young sponsors listening to us, one tip that I can give you, yeah, it's not easy. It's not, doesn't give you a warm and fuzzy feeling to write, you know, investors, write an email with bad news. But if you create, you know, if you share the game plan with them and say, hey, here's the situation, here's how I'm going to fix it and keep them updated on the progress of handling this, you'll get so much credit from investors and so much respect and trust. Yeah, maybe some investors are going to drop your next deal and they're not going to want to invest with you. But I think for the most part, that's how I would like to be 
treated as a passive investor, just tell me what's going on. You know, it's not that easy to do as a sponsor, but as long as you can articulate what's wrong and why and what's the plan for the future and keep investors updated, that's going to make them a lot more comfortable with whatever is happening. And that's because yeah. a lot of the value creation is done by managing the property correctly. Yeah. And the only way yeah. that we as investors know that it's being managed correctly is by what you tell us. And yeah. you know, I nobody I know is upset that vacancy levels, economic or real vacancy, has varied during COVID. The yeah. only people I know that are really upset are the ones who don't know what's happening. You know, like I've gotten emails that say vacancy has dropped to 75% and that'll probably go down the next month because COVID assistance from the government ran out. Like that's a reality that happens, you know, what shouldn't never happen is hiding from a problem. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's switch gears for a second and talk about opportunity zones. That's the topic that has been hot for the past, you know, several years. And that's where we're kind of in the last portion of our discussion today, the strategy part, I would like to focus on that. And a lot of people have heard about opportunity zones, but if you can kind of sum up what it means real quick, and then what are the main benefits to invest in an opportunity zone? I think that will be very helpful for, you know, our listeners. So opportunity zones were created in 2019. what happened in 2019 was each state was allowed and eligible to designate certain low-income areas, low economic areas as opportunity zones, places where they wanted investment and the investment received specific tax benefits for those who invested in those specific places in each state. So there are about 8,800 opportunity zones across the United States, only about 25% of which have actually received an investment in the past three years. The main tax benefits of an opportunity zone are tax deferral and tax reduction. So if you hold an opportunity zone investment for 10 years, so it's a long-term buy and hold, so you better invest with money you don't need an instant return on, what happens is the tax basis for that investment, and you can only use gains. Sorry, you can invest any amount of money, but you only get the tax benefit from gains on either real estate appreciation or stock or whatever. But if you put your gains into an opportunity zone, the basis for that is then raised 10% over the 10-year period. So if you put in $100,000 in gain, you're essentially putting in $90,000 for tax purposes and 10,000 is just completely forgiven. Again, you have to hold it for 10 years and you don't have to pay tax on those gains for the first seven years, or at least at the time it was seven years. Now I believe it's, I don't know if it's a hard deadline or not for 2026. I know that when I invested in 2019, it was seven years and the tax deadline was, you know, 2026 taxes payable in 2027. So you get a 10% basis increase. You also don't have to pay for your taxes for seven years. So you get to use that money to reinvest in things. You can do any sort of opportunity zone investing. You could own a business in an opportunity zone. You could put multifamily there. You could put an auto shop or a car wash. It doesn't matter. But what you need to do is put enough money into an opportunity zone that equals what you paid for the lot. So if you buy a lot for a million dollars, you have to do a million dollars of opportunity zone investment. If you buy a building for $2 million, you either need to find $2 million of value add, put a pool on the roof, or you know take it down to the studs and redo the whole thing. And so those are the main big bullet points for opportunity zone investing. I personally loved opportunity zone investing because of the tax deferral and the tax reduction. If you can take 
10% off of what you owe the government initially before they even calculate it, that's real money. But if you can keep control of your money for six, seven years, depending on when you did your first investment, that also you know, is real money that is a real benefit to you. From the government perspective, I'm not sure why they felt it was wise to live without funds for six to seven years. I'm not sure it's a good way to run a business. But at the same time, our government has run a deficit for many years. And that's between our lawmakers and the Office of Man, OMB and everybody else. As a citizen, I'm more than happy to take advantage of it. And that was, by the way, a, a great overview about Opportunity Zones. Thank you for that. One of the things that I've been thinking about when considering investing in an Opportunity Zone is how to basically balance between all the tax benefits and, on the other hand, making sure that I'm investing in the right market or right neighborhood. Because if you think about it, and maybe it's a misconception, Opportunity Zones are many times in designated areas that need some capital to be improved. Nobody's going to, you know, there's not many probably opportunity zones in very, very strong areas with $120,000 in median household income. And that's basically the question, how do you make sure to invest in the right areas and not end up in the wrong side of town that happens to be or not, or by design is an opportunity zone? So, It's not as bad as you might think initially. Mm -hmm. So the concept initially was to help the less advantaged areas that aren't receiving investment funds. However, they created the program in 2019 and they relied on the census data from 2010. So the data that was being relied on for each state was about nine years old. For this reason, there are different places in different cities that in 2009 were not places you'd want to live. And by 2019, it was all of a sudden the hot area of town. I mean, there's actually an opportunity zone in Manhattan, if you can believe that. So you need to, at this point, and it goes back to our earlier conversation a little bit, you need to vet the sponsor and you need to really, you know, give tough questions to the sponsor and get some real answers. You know, it depends on, I've done a few different types of opportunity zone investing. I've done a broad-based fund that has 2000 assets. I did one fund that is only going to have 12 assets in hot upcoming markets in different places in, you know, Charlotte, Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Tucson, Phoenix area, I believe as well. Colorado Springs is where they're located. And then I've done single assets as well. I did an opportunity zone investment in Estes Park, the gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park, because I know Colorado and I've been to Estes. So you need to vet the sponsor. You need to hear the answers. You need to look at where they're intending to invest and why. You can actually get the different opportunity zone maps if you want to look at them. So if someone says that they want to go do an asset in Charlotte, you can look at Charlotte and different places where the opportunity zones are and do some of the research yourself if you want to. You know, I did that a little bit, to be honest, but after a while, you have to sort of rely on the sponsor as well, that he or she or they know what they're doing. So you know, it's not always the worst part of town, but, you know, the first question is, why are you doing the deal? If you're only doing the deal because it's an opportunity zone deal, it's not worth doing. You know, you want to be able to say you would do the deal with either gains or non-gains or any reason to do it and just make sure that's a deal you want to invest in. Because especially if you're going for the 10-year hold, this is a, you know, it's essentially a marriage for lack of a better word. I mean, 10 years is a long time. If, if your listeners and yourself think about where you were 10 years ago, I mean, it's shocking. Yeah. 10 years ago, I was running around Boston trying to start a wine company. 
<laughs> now, I, you know, I was single and had all hours of the day to devote to wine. Now I'm married with two kids living in Denver. And apparently I was the only one at my wedding who didn't see that coming. So, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, you know, life and times change point. over yeah. a decade. So make sure that you're entrusting the person or the team correctly. Awesome. That's some real pearls of wisdoms here. And so make sure that you you took some notes because that's it's a very interesting way of looking at things. And you're absolutely right. If same with, I think, any other investment, if you're only doing it for the tax benefits, you know, make sure that the deal fundamentals, you know, that they're strong, the market, the sponsor, the underwriting, they all have to make sense. Any closing remarks before we move to the lightning round questions? The last thing I would just leave everybody with is as follows. There's no question that is dumb. I mean, there are yeah. questions. Yeah. The more you can get a sponsor talking, the better you just get more information each time. So, you know, take advantage of the time you have on the phone with the sponsors because that's what they're there for. And if yep. they're not giving you the same attention after you've made the investment, that's another point of information, you know, to think about as you consider reinvesting those funds when you get them back. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Eric. Thank you so much. I really appreciate, you know, your time, but we're not saying goodbye just yet. We have five more quick questions in what I call the lightning round questions. The number one question is, what's your favorite hobby? And if you're in Colorado, I think I have a sense, but I'm not going to guess. So my favorite hobby these days is actually just playing with my kids. Oh, uh, wow, okay. I did not I've become a family man. I like being outside with them. I like going on walks. They just started doing sports. It's fun to watch you know, to a five-year-old and a three-year-old run around and chase a soccer ball in a big clump of child mass. So that's my favorite hobby these days. Awesome. I've turned into the father everybody hoped I'd become. (laughs) All right. And what's the one thing that people don't know about you? The one thing people don't know about me. That's interesting. I would say that people don't realize how much I value quiet time. Like I'm, I'm very much an extrovert. I'm very much a people person, but I also really like just being alone at times and, you know, getting my brain on right. That's very important. I think my husband has been trying to get me to meditate for years now. And it's really hard for me to do because my brain races, you know, with thoughts and plans all the time. So getting some quiet time. I've been back and forth on meditation. It's sometimes Ah. (laughs) you, you do it at the same time every day. It's great. Once your schedule starts getting in the way of your meditating, you're just not prioritizing it correctly. Yeah, probably. All right. Eric, you know, if there's a book that you're reading right now or that you have read in the past and would like to share it with us, you know, anything, any book that was influential, inspirational. The Almanac of Novel Ravikant. Someone gave this to me and told me it was a quick read. It's a very quick read. It's basically his tweets turned into book form. And I probably pick it up once every two to three months just as a refresher and just flip pages. It's just good pieces of knowledge. And it's all around being present and realizing your value. And just you feel better after you read it. That's all I can say. (laughs) My friend Manish gave it to me. My friend Manish turned me on to it. And I thank him for it. I think I'm going to actually buy this book. That's That sounds really good. Really, really interesting. All right. Fourth question is, what's your advice for living an extraordinary life? Because this is, I'm all about that. I'm all about, you know, being bold, living an extraordinary life, taking calculated risks and do things differently and have energy in your life and enjoy, you know, what you do. 
So two things I would say. The first is have a good sense of self. Take the time to figure out who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us at least initially start chasing things without realizing why we're chasing them. And that, that sets a goal for us, which may not be appropriate. So gain as much sense of self as possible and understanding of your motivations. And that'll also guide how you treat people, which is another added benefit. The other thing I would say is marry up, find somebody who is better than you for lack of a better description. I mean, my, I am the second best attorney in my house. My wife's a much better attorney. (laughs) She's a much better writer and we complement each other very well, but you know, it's, it's hard not to credit my recent success without also crediting my marriage. Um, Awesome. So if you, if you're interested in marriage, find somebody to marry up. (laughs) Awesome. Well, sounds very easy to do, but. It's not easy. I got married at 40. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Eric, if listeners would like to get in touch with you and chat about real estate, where can they find you? So my email is eric, E-R-I-C, at ritvest, R-I-T-V-E-S-T dot com, eric at ritvest.com. I'm on Facebook, Eric Ritvo. There are not very many Ritvos out there. I'm on Twitter. If you want to read my bad jokes and occasional tweets, I probably tweet once every two weeks. <laughs> I'm the Ritvo. Any of those ways, I'm pretty easy to find. So just Google Eric Ritvo and you'll probably find my company website and how to get in touch with me. And I'd love to chat. I, I think you need to be a go-giver. And in that respect, it means talking to people who have questions. And I'm more than happy to do that. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did too. (laughs) I did. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right, guys, that's it for today. If you'd like to speak with my team about investing in multifamily, be sure to complete the new investor form on bluelake-capital.com. Until then, guys, be bold, be great, and create your own kind of extraordinary life. And I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.